We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrishan and I am here with Natalie Smattis. Hey, how's it going? In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Melissa Hills. Melissa Hills is an associate professor in McEwen's Biological Sciences program. She has a PhD in molecular biology from the Australian National University and has taught at McEwen for over 15 years. In addition to her molecular biology research, she is engaged in the scholarship of teaching and learning with an interest in universal design for learning. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm very excited about your, you have a, a very diverse um, range of research. Um, so the big question is, what do molecular biologists do? <laughs> Uh, so molecular biologists are interested really in how the DNA works, so how genes are expressed, how the proteins function in the cell. Uh, I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Usually if I'm telling somebody who's not closely familiar <laughs> with science like what I do, I'd just say genetics. I think most people are more familiar with genetics. So I teach genetics and molecular biology courses in the biological sciences department. Very cool. So you can see a wide range of students as well and kind of see how they learn and how they experience things. So that kind of gets me into my next question. Um, we just mentioned the engagement in the scholarship of teaching and learning. What exactly does that mean? So scholarship of teaching and learning brings together people from a wide range of different disciplines in higher education, just exploring um, issues in higher education, student learning in post-secondary um, and, you know, all kinds of people bringing in different methodologies and different perspectives and different views to explore issues that impact students really is, is the focus, which I think includes, you know, issues that impact faculty and what's going on in higher ed. And so it's very diverse and it is, I think, an exciting area to kind of explore what's going on in my classroom, mm -hmm. um, but also outside of my classroom as well, and engage in that with people who are passionate about higher education. What exactly kind of got you involved in that? I think I'd been, you know, peripherally aware of it and interested in it for quite a long time. You know, again, McEwen's a learner-focused undergraduate institution, mm -hmm. and so really as a faculty member here, the biggest part of my workload is teaching. And there is all of this published research on evidence-based pedagogy and things that we know work and don't work and what's good for student learning and what doesn't help student learning. But I think for a long time, I was like, oh, I've got too much other things to go, like I've got to focus on my disciplinary research, my molecular biology research. And then finally, our Center for Teaching and Learning offered a scholarship of teaching and learning fellowship, mm. um, which was really kind of a mentorship program where they brought together a cohort of faculty from across the institution. And we read papers together and discussed them and developed projects and got feedback. And we had guest speakers and it went on over a year and we had a retreat out at Pigeon Lake mm. um, for a few days as well where we talked about it. And I think that was really probably the jump off point for me where I set aside time to, instead of being somebody who's reading other people's scholarship of teaching learning, becoming a scholar myself in that area. Hmm. 
Um, you mentioned kind of what works well for student learning and what doesn't work well. What are some things um, that you have found that has worked really well in student learning? You know, I think probably a lot of it seems like common sense, but I think when you start teaching in higher education, you're not trained in education. You're trained and you're brought in as a disciplinary mm -hmm. expert. And so quite often um, you learn as you go. And I think sometimes also we replicate the mistakes of the professors that we learned yeah. from, right? And mm. so I would say over time, some of the principles I find that are really important, um, first of all, is transparency. Hmm. So I like students to have, from the start, very clear, very organized understanding of what is going to happen in this class, what are my expectations of you, what do you need to do to meet your academic goals, whatever those are. So I respect that different students have different academic goals, mm -hmm. but they should be able to, I think, walk in and look at my course design and understand what they need to do to meet those goals. Um, transparency also in assessment. So I say to students, like, if, if you are surprised by something that is on an assignment or on a test, like, I haven't done my job. There should be no mm -hmm. surprises. Mm -hmm. You should be prepared. And I also am a big believer in formative feedback, which, again, is an evidence-based practice that good educators use all the time, which is you need to give students an opportunity to practice and get feedback ahead of like a high stakes assessment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having a major essay due at the end of the term where they've had no feedback at all along the yeah. way about their writing or, or the goals is poor pedagogy. And so that's part mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I have uh, one class, uh, my theory class, that is kind of a similar structure like that. We do the worksheets kind of before we do like a big assignment and stuff so that our, our teacher can kind of see where we're at. And then she can kind of like go from there in like lecture material to see, you know, what does the class need more work on and that kind of thing. So I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah I mean, it really also respects the students it's relational, like you're paying attention to mm -hmm. what they're doing and, and how they're learning and you're responding to that. And, you know, as a result, you're a better teacher and they're learning more. And so it's win-win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same with me too, kind of when we're talking about transparency. I had a prof um, last week. We went over kind of an assignment that we had to do. It was worth 30% of our grade and he got us to read over the rubric. And so we read over the rubric and then he got us to sit in pairs of two and discuss if we thought that that was a fair grading system. And then we all got into a group and then he asked like, should I change something? Do you think that's fair? And I was like, that's the first time I've even read a rubric. <laughs> like usually I just read what we have to do and do it. And then whatever grade comes, whatever grade comes. <laughs> so it was, it was a cool thing to, cool thing to have happen. Yeah. And I view the way I teach is this structured flexibility is kind of the approach. So the structure piece is having all of the structure there. They know what's going on. We're organized. They know what the expectations are. I'm very clear. Um, and then the other piece is the flexibility, which I think really recognizes that all learners are individuals. They learn in different ways. Um, they can demonstrate that learning best in different ways. They bring into the classroom very diverse experiences, mm -hmm. diverse circumstances, personal challenges. And so also just making sure that I'm incorporating some flexibility and choice in that course design so that they have some autonomy and that I'm empowering them. Uh, and that might be things like 
I coordinate a lab. And so lab attendance is really important Mm. because they have to meet learning goals. But having some flexibility if they can't make a lab and making sure they're not missing out on the learning that they would have gone by being there. Or I might say like the deadline is this for this series of small assessments because we know that deadlines help motivate people and they help balance workload and they're necessary when you're packing everything into a short term. But you can have up to one additional week to hand Mm. it in so that a student who you know, you never know. It might be the worst week of their life. It might just be that they're overwhelmed. They might have a personal tragedy. They might just have too many things to do that week. And so even incorporating just a little bit of flexibility can make a big difference. And so I think those are kind of the two big principles that guide my teaching that I think support student learning. Mm -hmm. And it's built into the course structure, meaning students don't need to come and ask you for an extension Mm -hmm. or disclose personal information to get an extension um, and they don't get punished for using the extension. So I often use a week, but somebody else might only be able to give 48 hours mm-hmm. or somebody else might be able to give two weeks. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I have some colleagues who use more of a late bank approach where they will say something like, I'll give all students five days during the term and they can split those five days up however they want on any assessment they want, but that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, or they might say, I'll give any student one extension during the term on an assessment of a week. Um, So those are other approaches. Those approaches don't work well for me. I mean, I have ADHD, so having to track five days for a huge number of students is tough. I I like the one week because I know that most assessments are going to come in on the deadline. Um, And then I usually plan a day of like grading them then. And then I'll get a few that come in a little bit later and I'll kind of finish off those last few ones. But it's still predictable for me and it's still manageable within my workload. Mm -hmm. And that's important too, I think, um, you know, not only being flexible for the students, but also being flexible for yourself as well. I think that kind of goes both ways. Yeah. And I think that's where sometimes faculty push back because they hear flexible deadlines and think you're abandoning structure. Mm. It's going to be a free for all and chaos. And you're just what you're just going to let students hand things in whenever they want. You're going to have a million assignments on the last day of classes. And I think you can still implement it in a really structured way that considers um, the course design and and your workload. And, you know, for me, a lot of my assessments, again, are formative, meaning I need to get them graded and returned to students so they can look at the feedback and use it on the next assignment. So it, it doesn't benefit their learning if I give them to the end of the term to do that because then they don't get the feedback yeah. to do better the next time. So I have to be cognizant of what my overall learning goals are for students Um my own workload, yeah. the structure of the course. It seems like um, that's kind of, it's starting to become a little bit more popular, flexible deadlines. Like in the last two years, I've noticed with my professors, they have started to incorporate flexible deadlines. Some still say this is the day, this is the only <laughs> day you have, but you know, it's pretty flexible. Yeah, I would say during the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion on Harriet about being flexible. And mm-hmm. I think that really made people more aware Mm. of the fact that, for example, students get sick Mm -hmm. or class, you know, classes might have to be canceled or people have lives or, you know, and so when I published that paper, um, I kept saying to people, this works really well. And then I would get sometimes people pushing back and Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and collect data. And so in my course, I actually collected data on how students in the course used the flexible deadlines. So throughout the term, 
um, and I collected data on individual formative assessments, team assessments, and then those larger kind of summative assessments and how students were using that one week kind of flexible deadline policy. And then I also looked at how it changed over the term. Mm. And then I surveyed students and asked them questions about whether they found that beneficial, whether they used them, why they used them, what the benefits were, if there were any, their experiences in other courses. So I had the data of how they used it in the course, and then I had the data on how students perceived the flexible deadline. And I thought students are going to use it because they get sick. They're going to use it because they get in a car accident. They're going to use it because, you know, like stuff is going on. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't actually what they said. So mm-hmm. the feedback, um, and I'd have to look at my my notes to get the exact numbers, but the number one most common reason they use the flexible deadline was to improve the quality of their work. Mm-hmm. So students said things like, I could have got it in by the deadline, but just using that little bit of extra time allowed yeah. me to do better work. And I thought, wow, if you're an educator, that's what you want. You want Mm -hmm. students to hand in their best work and get the most learning out of it. Um, So that was the number one reason they identified. Number two was they used the flexibility to better balance other Mm -hmm. academic responsibilities. So they were basically like, I had a lot of other things to do that week. And this little bit of flexibility let me manage and balance that. And again, I think this is great because that to me spoke to students being self-directed learners and taking, you know, a leadership role in their own learning and making active decisions and being empowered. So that was great. And then the third of the top three reasons was students spoke to just it alleviating stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them even said, even when they didn't use the extensions, the fact that it was there just reduced their stress. So if something as simple as me saying, you can have a little extra time if you need it, takes stress away from students, lets them hand in their best quality Mm -hmm. work, lets them make active decisions about how to manage their time. I think all of those are huge wins. So those were the reasons they were primarily using the extensions. Hmm. I think like those benefits just right there are, you know, more than enough reason to implement as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other amazing thing is when we looked at it is students didn't use them very often. Hmm. Um, I think out of, you know, all of the possible extension opportunities that students had for their like formative assessments, only 18% of them got used. Like most students either used no extensions or only one during hmm. the term. So also this idea that if you offer them, students are just all going to become procrastinators. <laughs> And they're all going to treat like the extension is the new deadline. It didn't happen. Um, they really used it sparingly and they used it as needed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned too in that research how some people, the way courses were built, um, didn't take into account having families or being having a part-time job while you're in school. I find there's always going to be an area in your life which is lacking. So if you have a part-time job or that's taking up quite a bit of your time and you're at, you're also in school, like some of your school is going to be not as good or you're not going to treat work as um, a priority as you normally would. So those deadlines are good to help um, alleviate that stress mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the, the give and take. The give and of, take, yeah. Yeah, and trying to balance. Yeah, as you mm-hmm. said, yeah. That kind of gets us into, you did research on team-based learning. So kind of what exactly is team-based learning? 
So team-based learning, I would say that you're, you're with a group of students, maybe it's just one other student even, maybe it's a small group, and you're working throughout the term with those same people. And then the other thing I'd say about the team part is that really for it to be effective, it also needs to have that structure and flexibility built in because mm-hmm. you want people working as a team. Mm-hmm. You don't want students dividing and conquering. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, if I'm designing kind of a team-based learning approach, I want an approach that makes sure that students aren't just off in their own little silos, each doing a piece mm-hmm. and then not getting the full learning benefit of doing the whole assignment. And so right. you have to be careful. I think you have to be really thoughtful about how you design it. One, so students aren't frustrated and two, so that it's really supporting their learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the other, of course, benefit then is that students get peer support, they're learning collaborative skills, which we know are really important in all aspects of life. Um, And and you're building community. It can be a really positive Mm -hmm. experience. Um, I've read somewhere it was talking about how the students had to meet for an hour for team-based learning problems and the lowest grade was dropped. That was cool to me. Mm. Was that something that one of your ideas or was that? Yeah, I always do that. So this is what I find in my class that works really effectively for team-based learning. And this is kind of my short publication. I I, I spoke about this is um, one is I start the term with a team contract. Mm. um, And this, you know, these have been published in the past. So students, their first assignment, and it's worth like a a 1%, 2%. If they hand it in, they get the marks, Mm. right? But it's an opportunity for them to get to know each other because you have to sit down. But they all have to agree. They have to sit as a team and go, like, what? how are we going to communicate? Are we going to have a Discord? Are we going to text? What are the expectations around communication? How are we going to work together? And so there's a series of questions that's designed for them up front to agree on how they're going to work together and then also, like, how they would deal with conflict. So they have to identify, like, if if conflicts arise, this is how we would deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask students to identify frustrations with each other they've had from teamwork <laughs> in the past and also to talk about things they like about working, like what, so that everybody's kind of aware. And then ultimately, what are the consequences? Like, what what would trigger a group to dissolve? And I always encourage students to know that they don't have to handle group issues on their own. Mm. I'm here to help them. Um, because again, there's also a difference between a group being frustrated with each other and the potential that somebody feels unsafe in, in a group yeah, environment. True, so, yeah. so as the prof, like I'm, I'm the leader in that situation, they can come to me, but I do try to empower them to resolve issues where they can, um, cause it's a life skill. Oh, yeah, so that's sure. one thing the team contract helps. And then I like to do the teamwork for smaller formative assessments, especially things that are kind of like pass fail or not worth that much Mm -hmm. so there's not that pressure of oh my god my grade depends on other people um and usually I'll drop a lowest grade so they might do you know like my team in one of my courses this term there they have five formative assessments that they hand in during the term and they get one kind of where they could either not hand it in or Mm -hmm. they can drop a lowest grade so there that pressure is removed and then the final flexible thing I build into the teamwork is I never force students if they don't, if they adamantly don't want to be in a team, they don't have to right from the mm. start. I encourage oh, them cool. to, and I talk to them about why I think it's beneficial to their learning, mm-hmm. but I would never force people. Um, and I've had a lot of students who said, who say they appreciate that a lot, that yeah. feeling of, again, that it's their choice. And then the other thing I do is 
if they've got those five assignments due in their team during the term, if something comes up and they need to work independently on one of them, that's fine. And that helps too, because if you have a student who's like, I just can't meet with you mm -hmm. this week, you don't have the rest of the team being frustrated that they didn't show up. They can just work on it independently. And so dropping a lowest grade, letting them complete one of those assignments or more independently if that comes up, um, setting them up with tools to communicate well and to, you know, share concerns. Mm -hmm. All of that I think is important. Yeah, that's very true. I find with like all of our group works too, it's you do this, I'll do this, and then we just come together for maybe a 15 minute meeting and then we can do like a presentation or whatever. So it's not actually group work. You just kind of decide who's going to do what and then that's pretty much it. That's like the divide and conquer approach. Yeah. And so the other thing I always do with my teamwork is I link those formative assessments to an individual higher stake mm -hmm. assessment. So for example, a test. So my fourth year students are reading and analyzing papers as a team. But then they'll have a paper test where it's an individual assessment on a primary research paper. And I think it works quite well. And I think the other thing that that helps with is when you do have students who feel like they were doing more work than other people, you can say, but that's going to benefit you on this individual assessment. Like I can see the frustration, but if you're teaching your teammates how to do it and you're kind of taking charge, I guarantee you're getting way more out of it. And that is going to benefit you and it's going to impact them. And I think that that appeals to students' sense of justice mm -hmm. um, in with workload distribution mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, And like if you interpret something a little bit differently you or you miss something, your teammate, they'll always help you to learn more. Then. And that's the, that's the huge benefit. And you learn way more when you're explaining to somebody else mm -hmm. like why you think it should be done. Like we all we do better when we have to justify to others like why <laughs> we think that's the answer, why we think this is the approach we should use. Um, it's all, I think, it, in the end, it's, it is better learning if it's done well. And I think if you have that structure in place and that flexibility, you can avoid some of those common frustrations with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to kind of move topics here now, um, kind of in the same realm, though. Uh, can you explain to us what Lab UDL is? Okay. So as we discussed earlier on, I'm a molecular biologist. And so one of the courses that I just took responsibility for teaching last year is a second year principles of molecular biology course. So one of those kind of kind of classic introductory type courses that has a lab associated with it, which of course in the sciences is very common. Um, and so the, you know, the students go to lecture every week, but then they all attend also a lab that's like a three hour lab once a week. Right. And we, you know, we consider the lab an essential part of their learning. Mm -hmm. it, it supports the theoretical learning that they're doing in lecture also an opportunity to expose them to research techniques and have them do experiments and learn about experimental design. Um, so it's it's essential, but it's really, I would say, like a notoriously inaccessible learning environment. And I think in STEM fields broadly, there's a lot of conversations going on about the lack of diversity and inclusion in the sciences hmm. and the disadvantage that that um, poses to STEM fields because of course we benefit from those different perspectives and mm -hmm. different ideas and 
different forms of creativity. Um, and so when you create an environment where really a lot of people are excluded from engaging in science, I think that impacts the STEM fields and I think maybe society more broadly too. And there's lots of stats on that I won't get into, but to do the experiments, you generally have to be quite able-bodied. Mm -hmm. um, there's usually really rigid attendance requirements. Uh, you know, you can't be late. Yet it's such a good learning experience for students and it's an amazing experience just broadly. And I just think that everybody should be able to access that kind of experience. And I think everybody could, you know, in a perfect world, everybody could benefit from what goes on in the lab, even if they have to participate in different ways. And so this last spring, I started what is going to be, I think, a big and ongoing project, which is trying to use universal design for learning principles and apply them to learning in the biology lab. Mm. How are some ways that you can do that? Yeah, so universal design for learning um, is a evidence-based pedagogical framework. So it, it looks at how people learn. It le looks at like what we know about human diversity and human ability and it seeks to design learning experiences where you proactively remove barriers to learning. Mm. And so it's really, I think, about constructing an experience where the greatest diversity of learners can achieve your learning goals. Uh, it came actually out of architecture, universal design originally, which was really about designing buildings that allow everybody mm -hmm. to access them. Mm. So things like having ramps, not just stairs, uh, having wide door frames and so forth so that when you build a building you proactively build it in a way that everybody can access that building instead of these retroactive accommodations where maybe later on you think oh we need to add a ramp mm. um, and so it's the same with learning it's like how can we look at a course and in advance try to build in all the structure that we need and all the flexibility we need to accommodate a diversity of learners and so this summer I had grant money from the research office and from the Center of Teaching and Learning. And I hired two undergraduate research assistants with diagnosed disabilities to contribute to this kind of initial curriculum redesign. So we did a pretty major rewrite of the lab manual. Um, and part of that was doing things like including image descriptions with all of our images, uh, making sure that we weren't overly relying just on color, making sure the learning goals of each lab were really clearly communicated to students so they understood what they were doing and why, um, being very clear about the connection between assessments and what they were doing in lab. And so if you look at the seven principles of universal design, um, they are things like equitable use, flexibility in use, simple and intuitive use, perceptible information, tolerance for error, low physical effort, and size and space for approach and use. And so this is kind of our, our first round is really making sure, I think more than anything, is a simple and intuitive use, incorporating flexibility into our lab policies like attendance policies and our deadline policies. Um, making sure that all of our learning materials are adopting best practices for accessible materials so that students don't have to ask for that. Eventually, we want to move on and we want to support multiple means of learning, which is really understanding that some students walk into the lab and the lab instructor stands up at the classroom and says, this is what we're doing today. And that just makes perfect sense to them. And that is the best way for their learning. 
Um, but if you're somebody like me with ADHD, getting a whole series of instructions can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. There is a college, Mohawk College. I have some colleagues there that are really involved in UDL. And they have QR codes on all their equipment. So mm-hmm. when students walk in, they can scan the QR code and they can go to a video where that equipment will get actually demonstrated. So eventually we would definitely like to incorporate that and then also incorporate a little bit more flexibility in terms of different types of assessment so that students have more choice. And so it will be an ongoing project for sure. Um, we also surveyed students there about their learning experiences in the labs. Students work in lab partners. So again, like looking at the way that lab partners are utilized, making sure that that's a productive working relationship Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. one. Uh, And so I'm really excited about it. And we're just getting started. um, But I think a lot of good things will come out of it. And definitely including students in the experience was wonderful. They had such great ideas. Uh, Lauren Talkic and Sam Dancy, give them a shout out. They were (laughs) fantastic. They did such good work. Both of them had taken that course. So Mm. both of them too were like, I remember doing this and I was so confused. This didn't make any sense. They're like, we need a flow chart here in addition to the written instructions. And I'm like, yes, do it. Um, So they were fantastic. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Yeah. That kind of has me thinking too. I had a conversation with a friend. We were talking about being in high school and middle school, it felt like opportunities were kind of like taken away from us because we weren't good at math or we weren't mm. good at science. But in at the end of the day, like we were just getting taught differently than like maybe 10% of that class was able to be taught like that. So that research that you do to make labs more accessible hopefully can help kids in high school or whatnot to try to d- diversify that experience in university. I, I think, you know, you what you've said right now is so important because that concerns me too. I'm like, how many students got turned off science like as early as high mm-hmm. school because maybe they had a passion and really enjoyed a scientific career, but somehow early on they got the message that like lab work isn't for you mm-hmm. or you're not good at math and so you can't continue on in, in science, right? Like really a lot of those kind of obstacles, I think, are things that can be overcome when you create learning environments that accept that different people have different strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kind of have a similar experience with that. I uh, Before coming into McEwen and in the music program, I actually did a few semesters at U of A doing um, like animal health. Like, mm. uh, like for the longest time, I wanted to be a vet like that was what I you know in in high school I, I took all the extra science classes like physics 30 you know bio 30 chem 30 calculus like I was like I was like really you know trying to do this career and then you know I get into my first year of these like math and science classes in university it's like okay the first you know two weeks maybe are a review of what we did in high school but then like like after that it's just it gets so much more in depth and so much harder and you know there's all these like hard deadlines and Mm. you know there's so much to read and you know all that all that kind of stuff really you know built up for me and I really struggled with that and I I feel like it did sort of yeah I I I had to change my career (laughs) because I wasn't doing too well but um you know I I still kind of wonder like you know what if I did, you know, keep going with science and, you know, that kind of thing? And, you know, I, I still could later on in my life, you know, go back, maybe do like a, like a year degree program or something to just, you know, 
happy with animals and you know animal science and learn more about that but yeah I kind of did get turned off a little bit from yeah it's discouraging and your yeah. first first year is tough yeah. and first year at a big university especially U of A yeah <laughs> U of A was my undergrad school so I remember that first year and in the sciences you've got not only your your like lectures you have labs mm -hmm. which you know honestly like they double the work mm -hmm. often which is another thing like when I'm designing assessments for the lab remembering that they also have a lecture and there should be a balance because you can't just you can't just give them twice as much to do um so yeah I can I can relate to and that is not just you like there's this idea that oh it, it's really hard and only people who are like exceptionally gifted can do it um and really it's it's just not set up in an accessible way mm -hmm. um and if if you're already overwhelmed anybody's overwhelmed yeah. in their first year of university <laughs> anyway so it's easy then to go like this is not yeah. for me and get turned off and um I think society tries to really categorize people into these narrow definitions or under narrow labels but like as a scientist especially one that studies like DNA and gene expression um, you know that really the root of the human population is that everything is diverse in a spectrum. Um, and, and that is natural and good. And clearly it serves a role to our species broadly, but we've set up this mass-produced learning experience that is geared towards neurotypical brains and can really disadvantage neurodivergent brains. Um, and that's unfortunate and we need to undo that because really, again, we all benefit when a big diversity of people with different strengths can all engage in higher education and education broadly. Um, and neurodivergent brains are amazing and neurotypical brains are amazing and we can all come together and do amazing things, but not when we set up higher education in a way that discourages people from participating mm -hmm. if they can't function in a very narrow way way and they can't learn in a very narrow way and they can't complete assessments in that narrow way like that that is the problem to be solved I think and that's part of why I'm really open about having ADHD too because um I think it can help people to know like you know I'm a professor I have a PhD I teach at a university mm -hmm. and if you give me five verbal instructions I cannot follow them <laughs> that's not how my brain works mm -hmm. and that's that's okay and it's totally okay because, you know, the other things are just as valid ways of learning. And I think that is an exciting problem that I get to work on solving. Um, and I've been doing it for 15 years and I still haven't solved it. But I keep every year, I think, getting a little bit better at it. Uh, and so, you know, I think that is a fun and worthy goal to try to achieve. Cool. <laughs> I was going to say, too, um, it's good of you for talking about it, because I think for myself, too, when I found out when I was diagnosed, it was kind of like it was looked at as a very negative thing. Um, and you would get pamphlets and read through and it was like you had this bad disorder that's never going to make you smart and things like that. So to hear your story, that's very inspiring, um, which kind of gets us into like conferences and workshops mm. you give. What are those what are some of those things that you do? Yeah, so, you know, part of our our role, of course, of ac as academics is to disseminate our knowledge. You know, your podcast mm -hmm. is an amazing example of an opportunity for academics to share the knowledge that they are generating. Um, and workshops, conferences, presentations are also uh, things that we can do. And so I've done a few workshops on this idea of structured flexibility, um, 
some of them focused on the assessment stuff, some of them more broad. Uh, and it's something, again, like my my scholarship of teaching learning is kind of building and it's more, it's something I've developed over really the last five years. And so I did one actually here, we're in the fine arts building right now. So I, I was invited by Associate Dean Rose Ginther to give a workshop for their faculty learning community last term. And, and that was a lot of fun. And that was such an interesting opportunity for discussion because some of the professors that attended that were journalism profs mm. and so in, so we had like really really interesting discussions about deadlines and journalism mm -hmm. um and flexibility and I think like they challenged some of the things that I thought and I challenged some of the things we they thought and I think we came to I think we came to like a middle ground but it was a great learning opportunity and that's another I think reason for dissemination in these ways is the back and forth um, causes us to reflect mm -hmm. on some of the conclusions that we've drawn uh, and refine you know our methods and and go back to the drawing board sometimes. Uh, so that was good. Uh, I gave a workshop for Mohawk College in Ontario. Ontario has done a lot of universal design for learning. It's mm -hmm. been it's been more heavily entrenched into their um, like legislation for mm -hmm. post-secondary institutions. So I would say they're kind of ahead of the curve compared to Alberta in higher education and implementing universal design for learning. So that was a lot of fun as well. Um, and I've got an upcoming presentation I'm excited about. So I'm going to the International Scholarship of Teaching and Learning Conference in November to present the preliminary work on the lab universal design for learning. And that'll be great because that is still in the early stages. So it's a really good time to get feedback and hear people's thoughts. Um, and that's also taking place in the Netherlands. And I've mm. never been to the Netherlands, so that that's is exciting. a bonus. Yeah, mm -hmm. that'll be a bonus. So I'm going to go to the Netherlands and, I don't know, ride a bicycle around and <laughs> present at that conference. And that conference is amazing because it brings together a scholarship of teaching and learning scholars from all over the world. And they're all super nice people and it's very collegial. And so I think I'll get a lot of great ideas coming out of that. That's awesome. Nice. All right. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I don't have anything else. No? Okay. We usually wrap it up with one question. Um, do you have any advice for any students that are listening or any faculty or just advice in general? I think maybe my advice to students, um, and I, I take this from all of my courses, I do this midterm learning reflection where they just have to write a little bit of a reflection on how the course is going. It's really helpful to me. Um, and whenever I read them, I think, oh, I'm just going to quickly read them. Like, I don't have time. And then I end up spending like a whole day, like writing, <laughs> like writing a letter to each. Like, Aww. I can't even stop. They're so good. I, I tell them they don't have to share anything. They get quite personal. Like, it's this little insight into what's going on in their life and in the classroom. And it's really helpful to my teaching. But students are so hard on themselves. Mm -hmm. Students are so hard on themselves. And I'm sure I was too in my 20s, right? Um I'm a, I'm an old lady now like I'm in my <laughs> I'm like mid 40s now so I have all of this wisdom that I can impart <laughs> and part of that wisdom is like just stop being so hard on yourself students mm -hmm. like they like they don't they don't give themselves enough credit like those students are going to university first of all that is a huge challenge and a huge privilege to be here um they're they're waking up every day they're showing up you know for the most part they're doing their best 
uh, and their best just doesn't seem to be good enough for them. Like students are so hard on themselves. And that would be my, my number one advice would just be like, you know, try to spend time every day celebrating how much, like how much you're doing and how well you're doing. Um, don't feel like you have to have it all figured out because you're going to be your mid forties going like, what am I doing with my life? It like that never goes away. You think you have it figured out. And then you wake up one day and you're like, do I have it figured out? Oh, no. I mean, you know, like, like, like they're 20 going like, I don't have it all figured out. And I, I like didn't do well on this one test. And like, I'm, I, I feel horrible and I should be doing better. And that, that is it. Like, just be a little bit kinder to yourselves. That's really good advice. Thank you for being with us today and taking the time to be here. We really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smattis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smattis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.